Hello and welcome to the ITM podcast. ITM is the Institute of Travel Management and we are the UK's business travel industries not-for-profit membership association. This episode is brought to you in partnership with our great friends at Clarity Business Travel. Big thanks to them for helping us put the podcast together. They do such a good job. Check out Clarity. Okay, so each time I am joined by industry experts to enlighten and inform us on subject matter that ITM's members need to understand better. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Kosheri, Executive Director and Global Lead for Travel at UBS. Hello, Mark. Good morning, Scott. Mark, for the benefit of our uh, listeners who can't see us, we've got the memo on the dress code. We uh, look Certainly have. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Mine looks better than yours, obviously. Thanks for that. Nice knitwear. So um, so by way of intro, Mark, I think it, most people in the industry in this country know of you. You've been a high-profile buyer for some time. Do you want to just walk us very quickly through how you got to this position? My potted history? Yes. Okay, Scott. Might take a long while. Actually, short while. Uh, so I've been in the industry now for about, gosh, 30 years. Love the industry. I joined the travel industry working in the supply side. 20 plus years uh, as a supplier, going back from operational routes as an agent. Uh, so I really understand and appreciate, you know, the difficult job that agents have today. Have to put up with people like me, right? Went into account management uh, on the agency side and then, uh, as they say, moved to the dark side and uh, joined UBS and been at UBS now for 12 years. Well, those have flown. They have flown, really. It, it really does. And, you know, in between, uh, I've had the opportunity, as you know, Scott, um, been with uh, ITM for a number of years on the board, and then um, very proud to have been the chairman of ITM as well, and um, now the chair of the uh, advisory board for GBTA. That's me. Wow, what a career. That's This is your life. Wow. Wow. And the industry roles that you've taken up, you, as you say, you you, um, you continue to get involved mm-hmm. in um, various initiatives and organisations. What, what what is that? What has that done for you in your career? What kind of uh, understanding has that y- given you? Absolutely huge. I always say to people in the industry and um, people coming into the industry, don't underestimate the value of networking, the value of, I- irrespective of how long you've been in the industry. You're always learning something new every day. And broadening your network, being able to meet people, different subject matter experts, the industry is evolving so quickly. It's so difficult to catch up. So, you know, you're going to events, meeting new people, understanding how they've been able to tackle some of the challenges that you might not be facing today but you might be facing tomorrow. And and knowing, I recall speaking to that individual. You know, for me, it's been really important. Uh, I I think I've had the benefit of being really well supported by my business. They actively uh, support me being, and my team, being part of ITM or GBTA, attending these events. uh, And it's about thought leadership, right? That's really important for us. I honestly believe that you... You can't just do your job behind your desk. You need to be out there. And it's really important, isn't it, that your organisation supports you? Because we do hear sometimes that when people want to get involved without that backing, it can be be hard. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm not going to say that everyone is as fortunate, but uh, we've certainly seen the value of that. And if I can promote my team to get out and attend events, and, and also it's sort of 
it's a sense check. Are we doing the right things? How do we continue to future-proof our program? Well, you can't do that behind your desk. You can't do that thinking, you know, the world's great in, in our office, but you don't know what's going on in, in the real world. As I say, you never know everything. So you need to be out there talking to, you know, intellectual individuals like, like you, Scott. <laughs> I could tell the way you were looking at me, something like that was coming, yeah. <laughs> Let, let's go with that. Okay, okay so let's um, think about the, the subject of the podcast today is um, around supplier-customer relationships, what, what great looks like and how you get there. And we thought about you for this podcast, Mark, because of your experience on both sides of developing great partnerships. I know also you've recently gone through a very large RFP, so we'd like to just understand uh, how you've come out of that, the other side, and, and what you make of the RFP process. But First of all, what does a great supplier relationship look like to you? I think for me, relationships don't happen overnight. They have to build. You have a responsibility. So I have a responsibility as a buyer to make sure that my partners understand our business, understand our culture, understand us as individuals, right? And, and you build that report doesn't happen overnight. I think sometimes we're guilty as buyers. We either make an assumption or an expectation that they should know all this. Well, really, no, how can they? You know, we went through, and any buyer will tell you, going through a, a TMC RFP is, if you can avoid it, <laughs> you would, <laughs> but you can't. And it's a really important decision to make. We took a different approach. Uh, this time, not just handing out a 200-page RFP, but really inviting suppliers into our offices, the opportunity to hear what and who UBS is, what our culture is, what our objectives are. So an opportunity to hear from the horse's mouth, right, what we're looking for. And we did that across all the regions because culturally we're different in each of the regions as well. So the feedback we had was that it was really useful. So we went into an RFI for that process and then went through the RFP. 18 months later, here we are. And it's a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. And that's the only thing I tell, you know, if you're changing a supply and the importance is it's a very difficult decision to make. But it's about making decisions that are right for your business at that given time, whatever your objectives are. So, you know, starting with a new partner, it's about establishing the relationship, making sure that, you know, you give them the opportunity to, to learn about you as an organization and you as individual. Make it real, right? That's critical for us. So that's a long answer to a very well, short it's question. It's a long answer start. about a very long process, right? Because yes. if there's one thing that always strikes me about RFPs, it's that however long you think they'll take, mm. you could probably multiply it at least by two. Yes, and I've seen RFPs where, I've, look, I've been the receiver of, of, of RFPs and you look at some of these questions, you think, it doesn't make sense. Why have that, mm. right? And, and I hear that from suppliers as, uh, as well. So, uh, yeah, there's, you know, there's sometimes there, there is a need for an RFP. I think we overcomplicate it sometimes. I think we need to keep it real. Uh, and there's nothing better than, you know, uh, that face-to-face, -face, right? It really is a meaningful part of, a, of an RFP process. You learn far more. And help our listeners understand, without getting mm. obviously into specifics that, that would breach confidentiality, mm. how would a final decision be made in an organisation like UBS that's so required to be regulated and audit-proof? 
Um, how does the final decision get made? Who puts the pen on the paper? Any decision is collaboratively, right? It's global. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's my single decision. It's a decision that's made across all the regions. Um, you know, we have a working group. We have a steering committee. You know, the decision is made as a team. And then that's presented to ensure that they meet all the objectives that have been set. Then that decision gets made uh, uh, across the business. And then you live by that decision. And I checked in with you regularly throughout the process mm -hmm. because it, it did sort of go on as, as these things do. Sure. Any things you would do differently doing it again, which would serve as advice for our other buyers? I think it's important, you know, with our, with our implementation, our implementation goes on, you know, 56 countries over a period of five phases, over five months. You're learning throughout each implementation. So it's about lessons learned. Uh, would we do things differently? No, I think the process that we did was right. No, I, I wouldn't. I, wow, good job then. The reality is execution, right? Mm -hmm. you, can, you can make decisions. At the end of the day, it's about the execution that matters. Yeah. And there will always be, and this is the most important thing about relationship, right? There will always be teething problems. If you think it's going to be perfect, forget it. Don't change. Mm. But is that the right decision because you don't want pain? Um, no, that's not the right decision. So, you know, you have to give your new partner chance right they don't know you as a business uh, you know that reality starts on day one yeah. and that can be a you know you've got to have patience you've got to be there as a partner for them that's really important and, and I think an important thing Scott around partnership is you know I expect wh whether it's account management you know sp specifically around global account management or regional account management they're your representative in in their organization they represent your organization and you as a buyer represent their organization in your own organization so you need to support them mm. so that's that's really critical and the thing is finally on rfps because mm. um they, they get a, a bad reputation sometimes yeah. and in some categories they are becoming less prevalent it seems well, what is your take on that would you see you as less likely to go down the role of the would you see yourself as less likely to go down the route of RFP uh, for other categories, maybe? I think maybe for TMC it's different. RFP seems yeah. to be the classic. I, I think there are other categories where you can still have competitivity without going into an RFP. Mm -hmm. I think the dynamic nature of some, some categories, airlines being one as well, I think you can manage those in a more dynamic way. And as long as you're continuously benchmarking, I, I think for me, that is critical. I do think that the days of having those 200 page RFPs in certain categories, I'm not saying they're completely over. It depends on your organization, Scott, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I certainly think, um, Airlines is an area that I think we'll manage differently in the future. So thinking about relationships with suppliers mm -hmm. that we, we referenced at the beginning, um, would you what advice would you give for salespeople, sales teams interacting with a, a global client like UBS to make those contacts? Because you allude to the fact that relationships need to be worked on over time. How do you how do you make those starts? 
this is really this this is my bugbear. Let me I, let me just tell you. You know, when I'll give you an example, which still happens today. You get, I, I don't know, I'm sure other buyers do, right? You get a cold call. Can I speak to the person who's responsible for travel? Well, you've lost me. Mm-hmm. That That is, to me, just, it makes me cringe when I hear that. Not because of the individual, but they're ringing. They don't know who they're ringing. They're trying to get an, uh, you know, open the door. But you've lost me automatically, mm. really. That frustrates me. I think you have to build a relationship over time. And I was talking to, uh, you know, before about events, right? You build a relationship, understand the mind of the buyer, right? So understand the pain points so that you have then something that you can connect with, right? You know, when you get in a meeting and you automatically hit in a trying to sell, I, th- I think those days, you know, those days are over. It's an old selling technique. And I remember reading it a bit, plug really, but um, someone in the in- who used to work in the industry, Julie White, and um, she set up her own company looking at selling in a completely different way and bringing the human behavior into selling. It's about bringing that connection with an individual. So I think... You know, there are still old school type of sales. I mean, you've been, you've been. I've done a little bit. You've, you've, you've dabbled. I have. Right? You've and, dabbled. And, and it's so true because I think a couple of things. Number one, when I always recruited salespeople, I was only ever looking for two things. Good brain, because obviously you need to be mentally yep. agile and commercial um, and to be likable. Just those two things. That's all. Because if you're not uh, someone who has that ease of sociable interaction it's just going to be hard going for personality you. right that's bit of personality what, yeah, you, you need personality but i got by without time. one so that's not completely essential well, but do you yeah. know it's, it's funny you say because even in this world of tech enablement mm. what you're suggesting is that um you actually need to meet face to face to make that first connection yes and an email is not going to work no. it's too impersonal you're going to need to get introduced yeah. you need to attend an event be in a place where those people are it's kind of old-fashioned isn't it yeah but it's Nothing beats that human face-to-face interaction because a memory, right? You you keep a, a very good salesperson will always know certain things like you know who you support, right? Or which, change. Which, which part of Manchester are you from, Mark? Sorry, <laughs> it, it's the train line that goes from Euston to Manchester. Oh yeah, yeah. Do you know that? Man United oh, okay. fan. Popular Mancunian Mark Let's not start there, you know, (laughs) please. So uh, the other thing I was thinking is that, I just was thinking about this on the train today, at what point do you become Facebook friends with someone who's a supplier? That's a strange line, isn't it, sometimes? I know Facebook just dates me, by the way. I know no one uses Facebook anymore. But uh, at what point do you cross the line between inside work friends and outside work friends? Yeah, I suppose that is a difficult one. But I think... you, you. any responsible buyer knows the line, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so for me, you know whether you want to interact socially um, or not. I don't, I don't know. That's down to individual, Scott, r- really. I, I mean, I, I know and anyone who knows me that that's, you know, you have a work life and you have a personal life and they're, they're separate, right? So thinking about, again, your experience working with suppliers, what, what are the do's and don'ts? What, what, what do suppliers get wrong sometimes for you? They assume. 
that's the number one. They assume, never assume. I think because that's what they're trained to do. I, I honestly do. It's it's like very scripted. I must do this. I must do that. This is my sales script. Whereas throw that in the bin and just be yourselves. So we're just talking about that personality. Um, and you know, if you, if you're going to meet someone, do some background. You know. Um, that's really important. It's only one little nugget you can get, and then you bring that conversation. And you feel, okay, yes. I'm, I'm now establishing a conversation with you because you've picked up on something. Yes. You know, do your homework. That's an uh, interesting. One. And I always thought when I ran sales teams that one of the big no-nos was to ask a question that was in the public domain anyway that you should really know. You know, if you value this customer's business, you you don't waste that valuable time with them asking things that you could have found out elsewhere. Yeah. making that connection. So thinking about the people in your team that interact with suppliers, what mm -hmm. kind of skill set, therefore, do you need to have to work well with suppliers? Because we talked about what a good salesperson needs. I guess in some ways you need to reflect that back with your supplier-facing team. I, I think you have to take it back to basics. It goes back to, sorry, I know I keep on repeating, but personality. You know, what do they love doing? Why, why do they love working here? And play on that. I love what I do. And I think if you, if you enjoy what you do, you'll do it well. And you want to be surrounded with team with different personalities, uh, different skill sets. Communication is obviously key, right? Communication skills, not just in the written, but in the verbal, right? You want, you want to be able to establish a conversation, have some humor. I, I think you just need to be you keep it simple sometimes we try to overcomplicate things so i think you build a team with different personalities different skills and and that's important because then you you have i, I don't want you know we, no one wants a team of robots right everyone brings something different to the table um that's nice and that's enjoyable working in here you know i have you know i'm very very fortunate i have an amazing team different personalities who know how, how to have a laugh, Scott. And anyone who's worked with Mark's team or indeed met them anywhere knows that, boy, there's some personality in there. That's, there certainly that's are. That's for sure. There certainly are. Okay, so before we, we leave the subject of, uh, of supplier relationships, a question we often get asked at ITM by suppliers is, if you are not fortunate enough to make it to be a preferred supplier or the primary supplier, to what extent is the door still open for you to have a conversation? The door is always open. You should, you know, I, I will still meet and talk to new suppliers, even suppliers that haven't been successful. You continue to maintain a relationship. That's really important. I think for those who uh, just uh, maybe have not been successful and decide they never want to talk to you again, that's, that's naive, I think, because um, you, you never know, right? You never know. It's about keeping that relationship, um, keeping the opportunity. Doesn't mean maybe okay. My contract might not be up for a two or three years, but if you're not going to speak to me for two or three years, and then speak to me when we're just about to go to contract, I might think differently. Right, because trust builds up over time as well. Yeah. The other thing I think that's underestimated sometimes in the industry is that. It's just a fact that people move around the industry too. So you might talk to someone wearing one particular hat one day and then a few months' time they could be somewhere else with a different perspective and keeping that contact going is invaluable for both of you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
yeah, I, I can't stress that. That that's really really important. And, and now we go back to the point we were talking about. You know, going to events. You know, not just not just sales. One thing that really frustrates me that y- your biggest asset are your people, and I really get disappointed when I go to events and I don't see account managers at these events because they should be there. I talked to about thought leadership. They're really, I, you know, they're an extension of, of my team, the knowledge that they bring. They can't do that just be sat behind the desk. And so I've always advocated, even, you know, and I know you do as well, Scott, because your people are your asset. You have a responsibility to provide education. And the more that they can absorb what's happening in the marketplace, surely that's good for your customers. That's the one area, if I could ask, can we get more account managers at ITM conferences? And others are available, no doubt. Um, of course. And I think that's such an important point because having worked on the supplier side, you know, it, there is a temptation, a tendency to stay indoors in the headquarters, mm-hmm. thinking up clever stuff, when in fact it's so important to lift your head and see what's going on out there, check your understanding with other people in the industry, because to your point, it changes so quickly out there. And you shouldn't assume that what you've got planned for the market is what the market wants. Absolutely. A hundred percent. How, if you want, as a buyer, if you want to future-proof your program, you have to understand what's going on. So if, if you're facing a new project, you've got objectives this year you need to deliver, then you want to be able to either speak to your peers or you want to speak to suppliers who are subject matter experts in that space. That's really that's really important. I, I, I suppose I'm repeating myself, Scott. But you, you know, you can't do your job, and that's for a supplier as well. You, you can't do your job just bits being sat behind a desk. True. So important for suppliers to understand and listen. So I hope that's been really useful for them to to get that from you. Okay, so it's time to close, Mark. Really, I could talk to you all day on this subject, but we like to end each podcast by asking a couple of repeating questions. The first one is that because, in addition to being a travel guru. Uh, etc. Guru. Travel guru. You are, of course, also a very regular traveller. So (laughs) wellness and well-being is so important to uh, our community. Uh, What are the kind of things you do to look after yourself when you're travelling? That's a good question. If I'm travelling long haul, I tend to, I'd I'd rather eat in the lounge. If it's a short transatlantic flight, I'll try and get as much sleep as I can. Then I go into the time zone straight away. I don't. I change my watch. Go to the gym. Probably the only time I really use the gym when I'm when I'm traveling. You're a runner right? as well, aren't you? I love running. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that that's one thing I will always do if I, if I'm in a new destination or whatever, and also spend a bit of time, you know, having the opportunity to experience that destination. Sometimes we don't, right? We we go to the office, the hotel, office to the hotel. We don't spend time just. You know, experiencing the city destination as well. So if you can, it's great. Um, take time for yourself. That's really important. Agree. We fling ourselves around the world without stopping to look at it sometimes. There's some cool places out there to Yeah, experience. there are. Absolutely. It's nice time sometimes to spend that time, you know, different environments, etc. Okay, so last question, Mark. Oh. This yeah. one can sound morbid if you look at it a certain oh. way, but I like to ask everyone the same question. How do they sum themselves up? So the, the question is, what would you like written on that headstone, Mark? That's an interesting one. I'm sure some would put a lot more than a few words. 
the eyebrow. <laughs> <laughs> You're so much more than that one thing, Mark, aren't you? I, I like people that have short wording because it's it saves money on the engraving, doesn't it? So you know, it's that's nice, really it's nice good, Scott. I like that. Yeah. I like that. I, I don't know, Scott. What would I have engraved? Are oh, you putting me on the spot? Do you want me to help you? Go on. What would you... I'm not supposed to help. This is literally on, cheating. Yeah. Well, I think, for me, something about being a great father and a, and a really good friend. Something like that. That's very nice. Are you welling up? I'm welling up now. That's very nice. Yes. Keep it real. Right. Keep keeping it real, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us on the ITM podcast. Brought to you by our great friends at Clarity. Please join us on the next ITM podcast. Thank you very much, Scott.